All right, and lastly, remain standing for the reading of the scripture text. The scripture text is Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. So again, this text reminds us of the sufficiency of the law of God. The law of God teaches us how to love our neighbor. And so whatever is forbidden in the law of God is a type of hating. And whatever is not commanded in the law of God is a type of hating. Anything that is commanded of us is what love is. And every action, every rational choice we make, we are either loving or hating God or neighbor. And so as we consider the law still, and we look into the ninth commandment, what we go into is uh, what it has in the, the larger catechism and shorter catechism, the pulling together of these things. So question 143 says, which is the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, that comes from Exodus 20, verse 16. It's also restated in Deuteronomy 5. And we see in many places in Scripture, many verses about the duty of truth-telling. The Shorter Catechism in question 77 tries to explain the duties there of the Ninth Commandment, the positive duties, in a summarized way. It says, the Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. Now, think about the key pieces there. The maintaining and promoting, right? So there's the, the positive, this is upholding, right? the, the avoiding destruction, and the promoting, the building up, the positive building up. So maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man. So you preserve the truth, you promote the truth, the knowledge of the truth. Now the promoting of the truth and the maintaining of the truth is a way of considering the fame of God's great name. And so if somebody else has false doctrine they're believing, this duty of witnessing to the truth. Right? It's a witness bearing. And so this obligation to speak the truth is a concern for the fame of God, the reputation of God. In addition to that, we also have a concern about our own good name, so the maintaining and promoting of our own good name. And so that's about loving ourselves, and we have a duty to care for ourselves. And then there is the loving of the neighbor, the maintaining and promoting of the good name of the neighbor. And so this idea that there is a concern for truth, a concern for our reputation, and a concern for other people's reputation. Those are the principal things to be considered in the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment, look at point two at the bottom of page one. It says, the duty, there's a duty to always think and generally speak, bear witness, swear, and act in such a way as to advance the knowledge of the truth between human persons. The duty to never advance falsehood by an act of lying, bearing a false witness, or swearing falsely. So let's consider that. There's a general duty to speak, bear witness, speak, and act in such a way as to advance the knowledge of the truth. 
It's not the duty of a person to spread all truth at all times. You can't do that. First of all, when you speak, you are necessarily speaking a limited number of things. Right? If words mean everything, they mean nothing. Because if I simply say, blurg, many of you are familiar with that. If I say blurg, right, then there's not really anything that's being communicated by that unless we happen to be speaking a language where that has a dictionary definition that you're accustomed to that word. And so that, that idea of having meaning to words, and if, if a word means everything, right, if the word blurg means Bible and table and chair and person, if it means all of these things, if it means everything, if it means dog, Right? then the word doesn't communicate anything. You always have to say, well, which one of those do you mean? Right? So what's the, the sense that you mean it in? And so one of the things that happens in popular language is we end up using words so much that they start to mean nothing. Right? And so they stop communicating things after a while. Sort of like the label evangelical. And so as you use a term and eliminate the edges of the boundaries, right? Now, evangelical is supposed to mean somebody who has some sort of a vague religious commitment, and you have you have kind of the the uh, the emerging church, and they claim to try to be evangelical, or you have these people that are looking at Christianity and trying to compromise the boundaries of it and claim the name of, of evangelical, and this idea that evangelical historically meant that you uphold the solas, it, you you were differentiated from Roman Catholicism in upholding that scripture is the sole authority, that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that that works together for the glory of God alone so that man doesn't get any of the glory, but God does. And that used to be the boundary line. And now the word evangelical doesn't mean that you have to hold to the infallibility of scripture. It doesn't mean that you have to hold to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you don't have to care that much about the glory of God. And so that term has become a term that's uh, broad and largely meaningless. And when terms get destroyed like that, you start to find new labels. People that have a love for the truth start to come up with new labels to differentiate. And so those new labels, it's not because there's a, a changing of the meaning, but it's an effort to try to figure out how do you communicate the truth? How do you differentiate between those who believe the gospel and those who don't, or at least those who profess the true gospel versus those who profess another gospel. And so that's an example of the importance of that. So when terms are used, they necessarily mean something and not other things. And so when you're speaking, you are speaking a limited number of truths by definition. So you cannot possibly do all of the good works of truth-telling at once. And so as a result, we have to pick which truths to tell and we also have to pick whether to be silent, because there's a time to be silent. We have a duty to always think truth. We have a duty to generally speak truth, bear witness to the truth, swear in accordance with the truth, and to act in such a way as to advance the knowledge of the truth between human persons. And we are never to advance falsehood by lying, bearing false witness, or swearing falsely. So, point three, it is not the duty of a person to spread all truth at all times. It is impossible to spread all truth at all times. Point four,
Some truths are best for a given moment, and some audiences are to be pursued and others avoided. You can, which truth to give at a particular time, and also which audience to talk to. There are some Christians in the early church era who sought out martyrdom by finding people who would persecute them and then going and professing their faith to that person. That was sin. Seeking your death is sin. There's an example of telling the truth unseasonably. Now, if they were caught and asked, do they believe that Jesus is the Christ, they should certainly not deny him. They should certainly confess him before men. But you do not seek to become a martyr by going and speaking the truth in a way that's designed to cause dogs to rend you. Now, that's not generally the problem of our era. The problem of our era is that the bravery of Christians tends to give way at contact with the enemy. And so the concern should not be so much for us to stop all of the Christians that are zealously martyring themselves against the pikes of the enemy. That is not the problem. So I will spend the rest of our time not considering it. Now, some truths are best for a given moment, and some audiences are to be pursued and others avoided. Point five, there are times when revealing the truth to some person or persons about some subject or subjects would be unlawful. Think about this. If you are a soldier and you are captured, it would be sin for you to reveal information that would lead to the death of your co-soldiers, your fellows in arms. So you have an obligation to not give all information all the time. We may never lie. There are some people who try to advocate a doctrine of holy deception or righteous deception. Um, they will try to appeal principally to Rahab and to the Egyptian maidservants who are commended for their faith, but not for their lying. The book of Hebrews commends their faith, but does not commend their lying. They are commended for disobeying human authority. They are not commended for lying. Lying is a step beyond what ought to have been done. We may never lie. We may conceal some truths at some times. We are required to reveal some truths at some times. So the question is, how do we differentiate these? So let's continue now. So question 144, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? I'm going to also read the negative question today. We will not be going over the negative question today, but I want to read them both side by side. So we'll be reading 144 and 145. I don't have 145 in your handout. If you have your confession with you or your catechism with you, feel free to obviously open to that. But I'm going to read them both. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully, speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness 
to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name, and defending it when need requires, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Now, question 145. Nope, I don't have it in my own handout either. Okay, well, I lied. We're not reading 145. What's that? Thank you. Question 145. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovery of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. Thank you, Mr. Courtney. All right. If that did not prick your conscience, you are a perfect man. And if you make that judgment about yourself, you are not. 144, page 2. I got point 0.9 there. Okay, so the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. So preserving the truth between man and man views the loss of truth as the loss of the most valuable treasure. Promoting the truth between man and man, the seeing giving knowledge of the truth to a neighbor is spreading the wealth of the soul in a way that grows it for the one who possesses it and the one who receives it. It views truth-telling as a way of spreading the wealth of the soul while growing the wealth of your own soul. Preserving the good name of our neighbor 
sees preserving the reputation of your neighbor against harm as more important than protecting the goods of your neighbor against harm. Do you remember when we were looking at the Eighth Commandment and the duty as regards property, how there were duties, if you saw, for example, your neighbor's ox going around, you knew whose it was, probably because there's a brand on it, or you know your neighbor's cows so well by something else. So whichever it is, you recognize that this is your neighbor's cattle you have a duty to return that cattle, or at least to take it and put it into safe storage and inform them about it, right? How much more so the reputation? Proverbs tells us that reputation is more valuable than gold. If you saw a gold coin on the ground, you would see that as valuable. And if you knew whose it was, not returning it would be theft seeing a reputation in the mud and not restoring it is worse. Promoting the good name of our neighbor is something that we also have a duty to do. You can give great wealth to your neighbor by advancing their reputation. And you don't want to do so falsely. You don't want to flatter. But when you advance your neighbor's reputation, men are valued by what men say of them. And so the difference between whether or not somebody can receive great value, great economic value, receive opportunities and honors before men is often affected by that. We as a church ought to be seeking to rightly, justly, without flattery or malice, without any evil intent behind it, we ought to be looking for opportunities to honor each other, to outdo one another in honoring each other. Because as we do that, we enhance each other's value and enhance the power for each of us to advance the truth. And so that will also improve our outward estates. That includes with each other. We have a duty to be concerned for each other's reputation with each other. We do not want the charade of a happy face looking outward with a frowning face looking inward. Anybody who governs a home knows that's difficult. It's difficult in the home. It's difficult in the government of self. It's difficult in the government of institutions like churches or businesses. And God help those who seek to see nations that are filled with honoring talk. They will need it. And in fact, that is part of what we're called to see as we see reformation of culture, as we see a covenanting of the nation. We want to see a nation where there is that desire. And there have been nations where godly Christians have sought to honor magistrates and see public reputation concerned for. You can see that in terms of how there's a pursuit of that amongst the Puritans to some extent and also the Scottish Covenanters and you can see other examples of that in Christian cultures throughout time, even in the civil sphere. So the preserving and promoting of the good name of our neighbor, preserving our own good name, more care should be given to the protection of your own name and the protection of your own wealth. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. 
you probably work about eight hours, five days a week at least, to build wealth. Now that same action builds your reputation, right? If you work hard, it builds your reputation. But remember, reputation is more valuable than gold. We should seek to promote our own good name. And this is difficult. It's a part of, because we see the boasting, the vain boasting of the world, a part of what the church has broadly done is to say, if you ever seek to advance your own reputation, that it's pride. And that is not the case. It is your duty to rightly assess yourself and rightly assert your giftings and your own authority when occasion calls. It is your duty to advance your own reputation. And the principal way you do that is by studying the law of God and seeking to carefully apply it in detail. Because doing what the law of God commands is the way by which you advance your reputation. You are to promote your own good name. Some people treat fame like it is by itself evil. Fame is not an evil. Fame is a great gift. The difficulty is that people will often use godless means to seek to obtain fame. And then they say, when I have it, then I will start to behave courageously. If you do not obtain the fame while acting courageously, you will not use courage to maintain it. The best fame is the fame that is obtained through courageous action. Courageously supporting and fighting for what is true. There's a popular figure who has been interesting to watch his development. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with Jordan Peterson. A man who became famous largely by talking about the evolutionary traits of lobsters and how they are deeply embedded in our own perceptions of hierarchy. Not the most orthodox of Christian positions. But because he was unwilling to submit to laws that sought to coerce him in terms of what pronouns he was allowed to use, his refusal to say what cultural Marxists demanded he say brought him fame. And in that process, he was pushed as he considered these things. And although he still is no Protestant, he is more and more adopting positions that are looking more and more like historic Christianity. That trajectory is far better than the trajectory of more and more abandoning your Protestant convictions in order to obtain fame in the hope that when you get there, you will advance them. Jordan Peterson does not look far from the kingdom. I'm not saying he's there. But that trajectory is a duty to promote our own good name. Fame is a good thing. Reputation, good reputation is a good thing. And it's to be chosen over much money. Think about this. If you have a good reputation, especially if it's broadly known, how easy is it for you to get money? Fame, positive fame, is very easy to turn into money. Now, there are a couple of verses there that help to consider that and justifications for that. I'm going to move on. 
Point 10, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all things whatsoever. Appearing and standing for the truth. There are so many times when truth is attacked in our own presence. And we are all accustomed to the idea that Religion and politics and money should not be talked about in polite company. Instead, we should talk about things that don't matter. Appearing and standing for the truth involves, in particular, a concern for religion, but also, in general, for truth, an opposition to falsehood. Appearing and standing for the truth. A, a willingness to show up and to be under the banner of Christ to defend truth. To then stand in opposition. To stand against. To not retreat. To not run away. To not back off. To not caveat to the point of a death of a thousand qualifications. To stand for the truth. And so, that standing for the truth looks like a strong asserting back of the truth. It looks like when somebody attacks the Bible because of one of the you-pick-it unpopular doctrines, the exclusivity of Christianity, the law of God, the capital punishment in the Bible, the doctrine of Christ as the God-man, the doctrine of the Trinity, patriarchy, the use of the rod to discipline your children, right? Like, I could, you can go on for a long time about things that are not popular in the Bible. The duty to appear and to stand for the truth. And the best thing to do is to not be ashamed of it, but to glory in it. It would look in a lot of ways like vain boasting, but it's boasting in the only thing that's not vain. It's boasting in the name of God. It's boasting in the Word of God. And so when somebody says to you, well, isn't, isn't spanking something that's going to like hurt your child's soul? No. If you don't spank your kids, you hate them and you're trying to ruin their souls. You're the one that hates your children. The Word of God says that the rod is useful for the soul. It's useful to help the child to not be given over to sin. The rod when properly administered. And if you want to equate beating your children with the use of the rod for the sake of saving their souls, then you are lying and you are trying to deceive people and shame people for doing their duty. What is wrong with you and what is your motive? Are you trying to destroy the country? Is it your desire to ruin the relationship between parents and children? Is it your desire to see their loyalties change to the state? Is it your desire to see a generational rift? Are you hoping to see the new culture that was developed in the 1950s that makes it so that youth culture is popular culture? It's never happened before in the history of the world. All of a sudden, 1950s, youth culture is the culture that's popular. As opposed to the youth learning the culture of their elders and being brought into it. What is your motive? The willingness to push back. We've seen the example of Donald Trump where instead of accepting criticisms, he attacks. Right? The danger is he won't accept real criticisms. And he also attacks in such a way as to try to destroy the reputation of the other person off the point. 
But there's something there. What's the thing that's there? It's the willingness to stand and fight. Okay, so a Christian in the public square should stand and fight. Speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. And there's all these qualifiers from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, fully. Speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. Now that can be in a court or it can be between persons in a less formal setting. And then there's this idea of doing that in all things whatsoever. Speaking the truth and only the truth in all things whatsoever. But in matters of judgment and justice, in matters where you're trying to persuade people to action based upon justice, right? When you say that's not fair, what you mean is this is a matter of judgment and justice and I'm trying to persuade you on moral grounds that you ought to do such and such. Fairness is the same thing as justice. If it's not fair, it's not just. If it is fair, it is just. So you should carefully examine that's not fair. Because what you're making is a moral claim. You're saying, the law of God says you're sinning. You say, that's not fair. You're saying, the law of God says you're sinning. From the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully, speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of justice and ju judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. So what does from the heart mean? Because, you know, modern parlance, from the heart means sincerely, right? So, I mean, like, what's the deal? Why are we saying it twice? Well, there's a proof text, and the idea is the proof text supports this sort of interpretation of based upon you should think the truth in your heart, and then you should speak what you actually think, which is what sincerity is, saying what you actually think. You shouldn't say things insincerely. You shouldn't say things you think are false. There's a book by somebody who has sort of a monastic view, Rob Dreher, uh, who says to live not by lies, and he tries to advocate for a sort of retreat uh, mentality that we need to, the culture is so far gone that what we need to do is to retreat and we need to form into little retreat points, either in the city or into uh, you know, the countryside, and make Christian culture there, and not any expectation that we can project out because of how far gone things are, but then rather what we're supposed to do is to wait there, and in future generations there may be opportunity to be able to project out. Now, the, 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 the duty to retreat is certainly a real thing, and there are times when you have to do that. Um, and whether you're consolidating in order to attack in the same lifetime or consolidating in order to attack in a future lifetime, as long as you're not retreating in order to never attack, there could be a biblical support for that. We don't lose here. We have temporary setbacks. Now, he talks about cultural Marxism and, and, and talks about real Marxism <laughs> and what happened in Eastern Europe in terms of the occupation of the Marxists and what they would do to Papists and Ethan Orthodox and, and things like that. And he tries to look at the history of what happened in those countries and talks about uh, the ways that there's an effort to get you to live by lies. And so let's think about this for a second. So, so you think about uh, Maoist China. They would have these events called struggle sessions where they would grab people who were having a problem 
with the state for one reason or another. And the goal was to harass them with a crowd to get them to confess to heinous crimes. And then you would either kill them or let them go. And the thing that was going to happen at the end was never known ahead of time to the participants. And you sort of went with the crowd fury or with the decision of some sort of leader, depending on how important the, the person was. These struggle sessions are an effort to get you to confess things. They're very similar to the critical race theory sessions where everybody has to sit around and talk about all the ways that they have been a part of systemic racism. Now, political correctness is the thing that got popularized as the label for this in the 80s and 90s. Political correctness is where everybody learns what the heresies of our time are and learns how to voice their thoughts or not voice their thoughts in such a way as to be politically correct, to avoid the heresy of the cultural Marxism. Now, the great advances that have been made by cultural Marxism that get us to live by lies include the whole pronoun thing. That's, a, that's an example that's absurd, and it's having such a pushback, right, that you have, you have popular culture, godless conservatives are pushing back against this. And so those points where there's a reflection point, where there's a, a pushing back, are, poise, are points where it's obvious that we have opportunity to attack, and that there's opportunity to get other people to see what's happening, and those are useful things. When people are angry about something that is actually unjust, it's a useful thing to latch on to and to go talk to them and to go to more basic things. And you go, you know why this is happening. So cultural Marxism requiring you to say that a boy is a girl or a girl is a boy, you should obviously not go along with that. The idea that misgendering is somehow a sin, misgendering is actually rightly gendering. The efforts to revise history and to eliminate any of the benefits of Christianity and to eliminate considering the differences between philosophies. When was the last time you heard somebody in popular culture say, the reason America is so much better than other countries is because of its Christian, specifically Protestant heritage. And its Protestant heritage resulted in capitalism flourishing and resulted in people having delayed gratification working hard to accumulate capital and deploying that capital to make more things. Max Weber's book, The Spirit of Protestantism and the Spirit of Capitalism, is probably the last piece of popular culture I'm aware of, and that's not from this century. So the idea of looking at history and ignoring the philosophy Whenever you hear any sort of attempt to look at the history of a place and to talk about why it's well off, and the answer is because they abused other people, because they have lots of rivers, because of guns, germs, and steel, right? You know that person believes that naturalistic materialism was what rules the day, and the God of heaven is a figment of your imagination. Truth is what controls people's actions. Why were the Dutch well off when they had 80 years of civil war in a worthless swamp? Because of their geographic advantages. Speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. That's about history. That's about culture. It's about justice and judgment in controversies now. We should refuse to live by lies. We need to speak the truth boldly. And we need to get to a place where we have to pull back our young men from charging the pikes. Speaking the truth, 
sincerely from the heart is encouraged by refusing to say the lies. Do not submit. Do not agree. Do not say what they are trying to force you to say. Do not falsely confess to things. We are to speak the truth freely. We should be desirous to do our duty of speaking the truth in season rather than having to be pushed along by other people. We should also be desirous to avoid speaking when it is foolish to speak, but the positive duty is to speak when duty calls thereto. That's what we're considering today. So freely speaking the truth. You should be desiring to speak the truth. Your bones should be burning to speak the truth. And if you don't open your mouth, the pain is such that you can't bear it. There should be a desire to speak the truth. And so that motive to speak the truth makes it so you speak freely rather than having to be compelled to do so. You should do so clearly, which means when I was a kid, and like honestly even now, I struggle with mumbling. That problem of not speaking clearly has to be overcome with a consistent effort to enunciate. When you enunciate, you can offend people with the truth way more effectively. What did you say? No, that doesn't happen when you enunciate. You don't have to repeat it. Repeating is fun, but you don't have to repeat it if you say it loudly and clearly. Singing psalms loudly and clearly. Saying amen loudly and clearly, unless the prayer is bad. Don't say amen then. Speaking the truth loudly and clearly. But also, the avoiding of equivocal phrases. It's funny that the word clearly there is equivocal, but it's taking both. We should speak clearly with the mouth, and we should also use plain language to avoid equivocation. That's plain Puritan preaching. That's the method of plain Puritan preaching. My version, where I yell at you about all the things you're doing wrong, that's plain Puritan preaching. Plain Puritan preaching is taking the truth and putting it forward in a very clear way and trying to make that the emphasis, rather than making it flowery or having a long time to get through a, a small amount of material. The idea of proposition of truth followed by proposition of truth over and over again, trying to get through that with clarity and a logical order, that effort, that is what Puritan preaching is known for. The opponents of it would call it rude, crude, rough. Fair enough but it's plain. And the clarity is of great value. Speaking the truth fully. Now, here's the thing, right? If you have an oversensitive conscience about speaking the truth fully, you can't answer anything in less than 20 minutes. And if you are under-concerned about speaking the truth fully, one-word answers quickly removed from the mouth before a person has finished asking the question Maybe your tendency. Those are extremes, but you can examine yourself. Where do you fit on the spectrum? So the idea of speaking the truth fully has to do with speaking all the things that are pertinent. Don't overshare. Don't hold back what you know is obviously pertinent. If you're not really sure if it's pertinent, how important is this? Right? If we're not doing something that's particularly weighty, hold it back. If it's particularly weighty, put it forward. Except when you know we're keeping back truths 
to get to justice, we often overshare and we sin in not holding our tongues. So, there are exceptions. The exception is we, um, we have a tendency, because of our own selfish motives, to keep back key truths to avoid justice. And we also have a tendency to overshare in giving information that's harmful to other people or even to ourselves without good reason. We have to govern our tongue as well. So pausing to think about what to say. If you take legal training, if you're going to go on a witness stand, a, 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 a lawyer is likely to train you to say you should only answer what is asked and do so very carefully, like not adding anything to what the question is and not refusing to answer. That's a good rule for when you're in a precise and formal occasion so that you're trying to avoid creating a huge mess. And it also helps you to not have to uh, expose a bunch of things that are unlawful to be compelled to be exposed. Okay, so this idea of being careful to, to answer exactly what the question is when you're in a formal setting for public judicature, but you don't lie, you don't hold back the information that's being asked for. Now, see, speaking the truth and only the truth in all things whatsoever. So that's the same thing uh, we applied. I have, I have some, some caveats there. Um, well, here, from the heart. This from the heart. We will always speak from our own understanding. We must examine what we're understanding and see if these things are so. Integrity is a basic form of honesty. It's a concern for consistency and thought, word, and deed. So do your thoughts line up with your words and with what you do? Do your thoughts line up with themselves? Do your words line up with themselves? Do your actions act in a coherent manner towards a goal? Right? These are the things that you look at. So you compare all of them to each other. You compare them to themselves across time. And the Apostle Paul tells us that one of the reasons we're all guilty before God is because our own thoughts don't line up with themselves across time. We contradict ourselves, excusing and accusing ourselves with our own thoughts. And so the basis of responsibility is God is judge. He has given a law by which to judge us. Our own awareness of the standard contradicts what the objective standard is oftentimes, but our own view of what is right and what is wrong contradicts itself. And so we must agree that we are breakers of the law, and God can play back our thoughts like a tape recorder could play back our voice. And so that idea that our own thoughts contradict themselves shows us to be in sin. When you contradict yourself and your thoughts, you are sinning. Now, you should always contradict yourself by going from believing falsehood to truth. And you realize that you were sinning before when you had unbelief and you were believing falsehood. That's how you repent. That's what repentance is. Metanoia is the realizing you were believing something false and now contradicting yourself with new beliefs. All right. One thing about the general obligation to speak the truth, we speak, we have a culture that encourages transparency and openness. Well, transparency and openness are good things for public courts. Transparency and openness as regards all of your own failings or the failings of other people is a great way to destroy your reputation and other people's reputation. You have a duty to not air out your own dirty laundry or the dirty laundry of other people without a duty to do so. That would be when you are advancing conflict resolution, for example. When the person won't repent when you've confronted them privately. 
those kinds of things. Social media, uh, one of the principal uses of social media seems to be an a, a forum for oversharing. The use of oversharing is a mechanism to get people to trust you. Let me relabel this for you. If someone is oversharing, what is going to get them to not overshare your details? And so this idea that you need to be careful to guard your own dirty laundry, the dirty laundry of the people that are closest to you, and to also be concerned for friends generally, and even the reputations of your enemies, not overly sharing negative things. Point 11, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good names, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. So a charitable esteem of our neighbors. You know, you see me do something and you go, that's pretty goofy or doofy. And you wonder, why did he do that? Is it because he's a moron? Why don't you catch yourself? And you go, maybe I should pause there and think it's possible that he has a reasonable basis for that stupid-looking thing he did. All right, so that idea that you, you look at each other, you look at me, and you seek to, the charitable esteem of our neighbors is, is seeking to interpret the doubtful positively. Now, does this mean that you can never interpret anything negatively? No. We are to look for a preponderance of evidence to make a negative judgment. And when we're dealing with public judicature, right, in the church or in the state, you're, you're, if you're looking at just a punishment as opposed to just which side is right, you're looking for evidence that makes it so that there's a sort of proof. It's not proof in the logical sense, but it's proof in the sense that there's an evidentiary basis that's very strong that makes it so that to decide on the other side would be absurd. And so the charitable esteem of our neighbors involves training our minds to take positive assumptions and training our tongues to speak positive assumptions. But we also have to be not just harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. And so we have to be aware of negative possibilities without focusing on them or assuming them. And so when there are negative possibilities, depending on how big it is, you might just go speak to the person. And so you say, you give context. You say, I saw this. I was concerned about it. I thought it could be this. I didn't think so because I appreciate you, but I wanted to ask you about it and you know, see what was going on here because it looked concerning. Are you saying what it is? The, all, you know, if you walk up to somebody and say, you know, I was wondering if there's any sins that you might be doing right now. Right? If you're like, trying to draw out some general thing and get somebody to like, start accusing themselves, that's not a good way to approach it. That's not inquiring in a helpful way. Giving the specifics, telling them what it is you saw, what you're concerned about. You talk to them about the specific thing but you don't come at them in a way where you're saying, and I know you're wrong, right? It's, do you have any answer for this? And so that's, that's how you approach those conversations charitably, giving opportunity for answer. All right, so loving their good name. 
We're supposed to love our neighbor's good name. We must see the good name of our neighbor as a thing of great value. We should be more willing, we should be more unwilling to harm their good name than we would be willing to harm their property. There are times to harm property out of duty, right? You think your your neighbor is having a heart attack and they're not answering the door, you kick in the door. If they're fine, great, you had a good time, you gotta kick in the door. If they're not fine, then you've saved them, right? If you're wrong about it, or even if you're right about it, and they ask you to replace the door, you should do that. Now, if somebody saves your life, kicking in your door, replace it yourself. But if you're the one that kicks in the door, and they ask you to replace it, replace the door. Okay, so this idea that there are times when it's appropriate to destroy property in order to save life, for example, right? Um, or to deal with some emergency, but you take responsibility into your own hands for that. And the idea that we should be careful about names like we are about property. And so that sort of example, would you be willing to kick in your neighbor's door, right, is the sort of thing where you go, I need a pretty good reason to be concerned about them kicking their door. And I need a pretty good reason to be willing to speak negatively about somebody else. We should desire their good name, and we should rejoice in their good name. Out of pride and covetousness, we often don't desire the good name of our neighbor. We, we think that if somebody else's good name is advanced, it's not going to advance our reputation. Here's a secret. If you speak well of other people, it makes people think better of you. Here's another secret. If you're associated with people who are thought well of, people think better of you. It's a psychological effect called the halo effect. Okay? So if you want to advance your own reputation, the best thing you can do is to be around people who have a good reputation. Now, lots of people have figured this out and are snake oil salesmen and just lie about everybody around them being awesome. Oh yeah, he's a rock star, what's a habit? Oh, that person's awesome at this thing, they're amazing, they're the best I've ever heard of. They're so great, amazing, the best, the best, the best, amazing, 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 the best. That person's a liar, okay? So if somebody's always saying everything's amazing, they're lying, and they are trying to do that. That is the effect they're trying to go for. So, you want to, with sobriety, seek to say true, positive things, and that will advance your own reputation, and, the, and it will advance the reputation of other people. You should rejoice in their good name. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When honors and praise are given, when gifting and station are acknowledged, when others see good qualities in the neighbor, we should give praise to God and rejoice with the neighbor as though the good reputation were our own good reputation. It's hard to do. Typically, I don't care about other people's blessings as much as I care about my own. I imagine you struggle with that too. Sorrowing for their infirmities. When you find out that somebody sins, right, you can have this reaction. You can go, I knew it! Or, yes, finally caught! Right? Or you can have a, that makes me sad. I'm sure you've had both reactions in your lifetime. Where you've heard of somebody where they got caught in this evil thing and you're like, nailed it. On the other side where you went, oh. Sadness over the sins and weaknesses of others rather than triumphing over the weaknesses of others is what we're called to. We seek to avoid the appearance of the blemishes of others rather than pointing to them and showing them off. And so that's where this covering comes from. So the, the, the proof text for that this Genesis text, I think, is a 
is a beautiful and powerful picture. You have Noah. Noah, this is after the flood. Noah plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. He and his sons are they who, through whom all of the population of the world thereafter came from. And so it says, Noah became a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So he sees the nakedness. He's looking at this, this nakedness, the shame of his father. And he goes and tells about the shame of his father. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father, father's nakedness. Right? So this, this idea of taking great care to avoid seeing the shame. Or you might just be like, well, we, we've got to do something here. He's being shamed. Cover him up. We'll just walk in and, and cover him, and that, you'll see his nakedness briefly. Think about the care here. Walking in backward to cover his shame. The avoiding of looking at his shame. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Proverbs seems to take this thing and turn it into a proverb. Right? If you cover it, if you don't think upon it, if you're not speaking about it, you're seeking the good of your neighbor. He who repeats a matter separates friends. You're, you're destroying reputation. You're destroying the relationship. Right? You're, you're separating people. And oftentimes, you know how to, you know, have you, ever, have you ever had a time or people you've been around who are looking for something to destroy a particular relationship? And so they go, I know this offense would be really powerful to make this person hate that person. And so you see that and you go, here's the thing. And then you report it. Because right? that's the one that's going to be powerful to destroy the relationship. So there can be a selective reporting about that as well. Because people know if you're reporting negative things all the time, it starts to undermine your negative reporting, right? And so this idea of waiting for the choice ones, that's the repeating to separate friends. First Peter 4.8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So we sorrow for the infirmities of others, and we seek to cover them. On the other side of that, we should freely acknowledge their gifts and freely acknowledge their graces. So we should be looking for opportunity to do that. And, and so I, that desire to say, here's a gift of God, here's some way that you're talented, here's something you've been given, and acknowledging it freely, and acknowledging their graces, the, the, the gifts of grace, the sanctification, the gifts of the Spirit, so these things, the freely acknowledging of gifts and graces, doing that as a way of giving honor, doing that as a way of advancing reputation, doing that in the mind, doing it with your words, and acting in that way. Right? So you need to acknowledge it in your mind. You need to look for these things. If you are not meeting, when you meet people, if you're not looking for what's positive about them, you're going to naturally look for what's negative about them. Now, our culture is filled with people who are undisciplined and who have horrible habits. 
it is really easy to see the negative of people we meet in our culture. Because we have a culture that is collapsed. And so we have to look for the positive things and we have to look for how we can encourage to godliness. We have to look for how to see where are the useful things that can be done because the only thing that's going to happen where somebody becomes a believer and they start to be useful is if they start to do useful things. And that's going to fill their time and help them to find a need for more and more gifting, to develop gifting. It's really easy to not develop gifting when you just seek entertainment all the time. You have to find profitable work to put people into. And when they have profitable work to do, as they're doing things and trying to accomplish goals, the pain of not having other gifts or skills becomes more apparent to them. They go, I want to accomplish this thing, and I don't know how to do it. Or I don't have the resources. I don't have the ability. I don't have the time. Which increases their need for other people and shows them the need to find ways of taking the gifting of other people working together. That pain of not being able to get the thing that is good drives us to develop our skills further, to work harder, and to value working with other people more. And so when we're helping people to grow in usefulness in the church, that has to be a part of it, is looking for that. So looking for gifts and graces, and then freely acknowledging and encouraging the use of them in those people. Defending the innocency of a person, a ready receiving of a good report concerning our neighbor, an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning our neighbor. If somebody asserts that somebody's guilty of something, the first response should be no. The first response should be prove it. Or why are we talking to me about this? Why aren't you talking to them about this? Let's go talk to them together about this. A ready receiving of a good report concerning our neighbor. Somebody says something good about somebody else, we shouldn't go, no. Not them. Instead it should be, wow. That's great. The unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning our neighbor is the same sort of thing. You defend The tendency to defend the innocency or say, why are you telling me this or how do you know this? So the discouraging of talebearers. There are useful stories to tell, but there's a general tendency to tell our own stories in a vain, glorious, or boasting sort of way, or to tell entertaining negative things about ourselves that harm our own reputation, or to tell other people's stories. So I think uh, Webster's 1828 has some really great definitions here. So I want to read a definition for talebearer for you. A person who officiously tells tales. One who impertinently communicates intelligence or anecdotes and makes mischief in society by his officiousness. Uh, Webster quotes Proverbs 26.20, where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. Now, if officiousness were more widely known, perhaps there would be more laughter. So I'm going to read officiousness. Officious, busy, intermeddling in affairs in which one has no concern. Officiousness, noun, eagerness to serve. That sounds positive. Usually an excess of zeal to serve others, or improper forwardness, interposing in affairs without being desired, or with the disposition to meddle in with the concerns of others. So if you're telling a tale, 
and it's not really your business or it's not yours to share, it's not good, right? Then that idea of the oversharing of something else is officiousness in telling information. So a person who officiously tells tales, that's a tale bearer. So we have to be careful about storytelling and we have to be careful also, the other kinds of discussion that, that fill up lots of time are flattery, slander. These are things to be worried about. Flatterers. Flattery feels good for the moment, but it's destructive to the teller and to the hearer. The flatterer sets a trap for the one being flattered, and the flatterer is practicing hatred. Discouraging slanderers. Hearing negative reports of others who are better than us, equal to us, or even inferior to us can be used to reaffirm our own pride. Right? If somebody's better than us and we hear negative reports like, yeah, they may have this better whatever, but they're not so great. Or this person's an equal, you go, I knew I was better than them. Or the person's inferior, and they're obviously inferior in some sort of station, and you go, yeah, that's why they're there. But you reaffirm yourself in this thing. It's your own conceit. They're superior to me, but not really. They're equal to me, but I'm really better than them. They're inferior to me, yeah. Right? That, that process, we like to do that. And that's for our own pride. It has to be stopped. Instead, when we hear negative things, if it's slander, we need to defend. If it's true, what we need to do is grieve over it. Hearing slander against those who we particularly dislike can feel good. That feeling is the love of lies and the triumphing of the harm of the neighbor unjustly. Love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requires. I have a lot there. This is a very important thing. The short thing is, if there's a controversy about you, most of the time, it is best to not chase down negative things about yourself. Sometimes, if it becomes a big deal or it's a particularly weighty slander or it's particularly public, you have to fight it zealously. If it is in court... You have to fight it zealously. The main argument against that is Christ didn't defend himself in court. Christ came to die. Why didn't Jesus defend himself when he was being arrested wrongly? Christ came to die. Why didn't he defend himself in the court? Christ came to die. Why didn't Christ resist the Roman soldiers who were abusing him? Christ came to die. Why didn't Christ get off the cross when he had the power to do so? Christ came to die. Keeping of lawful promises. I'm just going to read Psalm 15, verse 4 here. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's the one that's blessed. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Make a promise and you keep it, though it's to your harm. Keep lawful promises. Studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. We are to study these things and practice them. To study them and practice them. The things that are true, you should think upon the truth. Philosophy, theology. And then, the practicing of what is true. Applying the truth by applying the one rule. So, we need to pursue the truth that has been obtained to by the church. The confessional standard of the church is the mature point to which the church has reached. 
and you need to understand the truth to the point of the maturity of the church. You need to know the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism. You need to know those well. And you need to understand the biblical defense of those doctrines. You need to know if, those confession, if that confessional standard is wrong. It's not. But you need to know if it is. And that confessional standard, when it's obtained to, you are mature to the point that the church is matured to, and you can be a part of advancing. You mature to that point. Now, when our, we talk about applying the truth, we need to understand the one rule of practice, the canon law, so to speak, and we need to judge it. What's the canon law for us? Well, for us, we look at the way the Westminster Larger Catechism lays out the Ten Commandments, and this is saying, here's the understanding of the law of God that's been adopted. This isn't the scriptures, it's the Westminster Larger Catechism. You didn't stand when I read it. It's not the scriptures. But, if it's true, and it's the one rule that the church has agreed to in terms of our practice, understand that and seek to apply it to the point that it has been figured out. And we can have one confession, and we can walk with one rule. And that's studying the truth, and it's seeking to practice it. We're to study the things that are honest, which learning how to communicate more effectively so that you can avoid giving false appearances. That includes right government, right forms, and a method of ruling, right process for applying power in the right sphere, right process for trial and transparency. These are all things that help to keep things honest. This idea of studying and practicing the things that are honest. Now, that's also, you could look at commerce, right? Contracts and, and fair weights and measures, just weights and measures. But this idea that we all have prejudices and biases. What is the point of process? The point of process is to slow down and reduce emotion, increasing formality and requiring that things be public so that there's pressure to do what's just. In matters of weight and moment that are public, the use of process is for the sake of the practice of honesty and the external pressures to do so. Studying the things that are lovely and practicing the things that are lovely. I have a series of questions here for you. To study what's lovely, you have to ask, what's beautiful? How do you make what's beautiful? How can we be what is beautiful? What is biblical beauty? What's the relationship of truth, reality, goodness, and beauty? Are the things that are good always beautiful? Can what is good be ugly? Is beauty the same for all things, or are things beautiful by being different from one another in some ways? Are the points of shared overlap for all beautiful things? Are there things that are shared overlap for all beautiful things? Or is beauty an utter difference between all things with no points of overlap? When you have answers to those types of questions, you begin to see what popular culture does with beauty, and you can begin to assess it from a biblical perspective. And so a doctrine of beauty is necessary. We have to study what's lovely. We have to study what it means to be lovely. And then we need to practice it. Beautifying the world in our words, deeds, and culture creation. And here's one of the distinct glories of womanhood. Womanhood is about beautifying. The weaker vessels, women, are given a special place 
And that special place is similar to the special place that differentiates the ordinary dinnerware from the china. And so the idea of the fine china is about beauty. It functions. If you use it all the time, it's going to chip. The men have a strength and frame that is designed to make it so that we can bear the load and so that we can deal with things and fight. Honoring manhood as the fighting class and honoring womanhood as the beautifying class makes for a beautiful, glorious, and honorable culture. When you destroy the distinctions, beauty is gone and so is strength. We are to study what is of good report and to practice what is of good report. We must consider what things bring good report and what things bring bad report. We should do the things that bring about honoring words for the sake of the glory of God. As Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Great. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to us, that you would cause us to grow in the knowledge of you and to um, apply what your word says. Father, we ask that you'd help us now to sing uh, with a bold, clear voice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.